take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. As we continue this study in the Hall of Fame of Faith, as some have called it, certainly looking at uh, the faith of the Old Testament saints, always was looking forward to what God had promised and what God was going to do. It was not in their own, their, their faith was not in themselves, what they could do, but was it was it, what God could do. And so far we haven't even gotten out of the book of Genesis with what uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews is showing about this tremendous faith that God's people have shown in him. Again, realizing they were not perfect, these Old Testament saints. You know, uh, somebody once asked me about how do you, how do you handle all these things about these sins that, Abraham and, and others did in the Old Testament. I mean, you know, David, you know, man after on God's, God's own heart, is, is pretty vile in some ways at one time in his life. How do you, how do you deal with that and accept the Scripture as the Word of God? And, and my answer is always, well, that to me is an evidence that this is God's Word. You know, let's face it, a bunch of religious people were just sitting around trying to write a book that would be, uh, that would be favorable to their faith. They would have spent a whole lot of time cleaning up these lives. They would not have written about saints of old that had warts. I don't mean physical warts. I mean moral warts. They wouldn't have written about the, the, the believers in God who fell into sin and who, who, who looked pretty bad at times in their life. But the Scripture shows the saints of God warts and all because it's not contingent upon who they are. It's contingent upon who He is. It's not what they do. It's what He does. It's not what, what they can accomplish for God. It's what God accomplishes in them and through them on a daily basis in their life. And so we look at these great saints and we say, boy, they blew it a lot. And we like to think they blew it a lot more than we do, but that's just our own dishonesty with ourselves because we blow it just like they did. And yet we still serve a merciful and a gracious and a loving God who walks with us through those times and restores us even in the midst of great disobedience and great sin. Then you come to a guy like Abraham. We've already talked a little bit last week about Abraham having a faith that was looking to the future. God called him, said, leave your land, go to a place that he didn't know where it was, what it was going to be like, but God just said, I'm giving you that, and you, I'll be with you, and I'll take care of you. And so he went, and he did what God had called him. Then you get to verse 17, and you come to a point where Abraham faces, without a doubt, the most critical test of faith that he ever had. He comes to a point where he is, he is tested in such a way that you and I, quite honestly, I don't think can sitting here this morning fully comprehend. It, it was a test of faith that asked him to give everything. And not only give everything right now, but, but give everything the, that, that the future held because this one that he's talking about, this son he's talking about, was the heir. He was the one through whom all the nations were going to be blessed according to God, and yet God was making a demand upon Abraham that just seemed unfair. I'm sure Abraham had to have thought, at least momentarily, God, this is not fair. How, how can this be? I mean, Abraham had to struggle just a little bit with God. You are a God of life. How can you be asking me to do what you're about to ask me to do? 
So much so that many scholars on the left persuasion more have said, you know, this is, this is evidence that the Bible just contains a lot of fairy tales because God, who later condemns in the law any taking of human life uh, by un, un, unrighteous means, when he says, thou shalt not murder in the Ten Commandments, surely this can't be about that God. But indeed it is. Some have said God is unethical if he does that. No, God is God. Whatever he does is ethical, and whatever he does is right, and, and who he is is what we sang about this morning. He is a holy God. He is a perfect God. He is a righteous God, and whatever he commands is holy and righteous and good. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that in Abraham's life, and don't ever forget that in your own life. When you come to points in your life where you say, God, how can this be happening to me? How can I be going through this? Don't ever forget, that's not unusual, and God is with you in the middle of it. Just keep trusting him. Red and I were talking last night. As she was talking about her Sunday school lesson some, and I was thinking about this message that, you know, we really ought not be surprised when great testings come upon our life. I'll get to the text in a minute. But we really ought not be surprised because that's really what was promised. Jesus said to the disciples, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they, if they took my word, if they accepted my word, they'll accept your word too. But, but if they don't like what I say, they're certainly not going to like what you say. And so we ought not be surprised when difficult times come, when people reject us because we are trying to be faithful to God's word and God's truth. We, we ought not be surprised about that. What about when God, we feel like God is leading us in a way that just seems radical? Just seems like it's really against everything we consider to be safe and secure and good in our own thinking. And God is leading us to do something that just doesn't seem fair to us. Well, that's where Abraham was. You're finding... Verse 17, these words, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said in Isaac, Your descendants shall be called. He considered that God, that is Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That's an important verse. We'll come back to that. Don't forget it. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of his sons, the sons of Joseph, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel, and gave orders concerning his bones. Now, in one brief paragraph, the, the writer here concentrates on the offering of Isaac by Abraham, which is what we'll kind of concentrate on this morning. But then immediately in that same paragraph, he throws in Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph, uh, the patriarchs that followed after Abraham, those who were the, the, the carrier-owned people of the faith, who took the, the faith of God 
through Abraham on to future generations. And each time it says he blessed them and they looked to the future. He blessed them and they worshipped. He blessed them and they, they, they kept carrying on with what God was looking at. And even Joseph, when he was there in Egypt, he, he talked about the Exodus. He knew that God had promised to get them out of that slavery and get them into a promised land. And he knew it was coming and he said, okay, just when you go, don't forget my bones. I'm not going to realize that in this life, Joseph said. But, but I don't want to be buried here in Egypt and be forgotten here when y'all are off having a great time in the land of milk and honey. Take my bones with me that I might at least be buried in the place of the fulfillment of that promise that was made to Abraham, the father of our faith. And so, so the whole idea here is they, they didn't see all that was to come. They didn't see the fulfillment of every promise of God, but they never quit looking for it. They never quit believing in it. And they knew that though they physically might not see it, they were going to understand it. They were going to see it ultimately in heaven one day. What about Abraham and Isaac? What about this situation where some say that just couldn't have really been of God? Abraham must have been drinking something kind of funny that day and just didn't, didn't really hear from God. He heard from himself. Well, I had Brother Todd read at the opening of the service this morning or during the scripture reading the, the account of the call, the account of the orders from Genesis because I want you to get a feel of what Abraham was going through. There's a lot that the writer of Hebrews tells us about that, the, that, that Moses doesn't tell us about in Genesis. He gives us a greater insight, a greater understanding in the fact that that. Uh, Abraham really considered that God was able to raise the dead. He really knew that God was able to raise the dead. In, in Genesis, you really don't get a full appreciation of that. You know that he's doing what God has told him to do, and he knows that Isaac is to be the heir and to be the one through whom all the generations are blessed. So there had to be in the back of his mind something about, well, if God's calling me to do this, then God is going to bring about a reversal of that, and God is going to somehow, after I kill Isaac, raise him from the dead. You know that's got to be somewhere in the back of his mind. At least that's his hope. But it isn't until we hear the writer of Hebrews that he said, Abraham considered that. He knew that. That even though God may call him to sacrifice Isaac, there will be a, there. There is the fact. There's the truth that God is able to raise people, even those from the dead. This was a test. This was a test, like few of us will ever have to fully go through. But it is a test that is also indicative of tests that we will go through. Uh, if you look over just a few pages, if you look at, at James little letter there. I won't take long to dwell on this, but I want to prepare you for talking about Abraham and Isaac by hearing what James is saying to you and me. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, if your faith isn't tested, you're going to have a hard time enduring. You're, you're going to do like Sir Francis Drake prayed as he set out on the said, Lord, disturb us because if, if we're not careful, we'll think that everything we accomplish is what we're accomplishing. It's, it's from us. It's by us. And it's to be for our glory. 
When in reality, everything that we do and everything we go through will have tests come upon it because God wants us to realize that he is the one in control. And, and he does these tests. He did it in Abraham's life. Not so much, not at all to prove to God that Abraham had faith. God knew that. He's an omniscient God. He knows all things. But he did it so that Abraham might know. So that Abraham might understand what it means to fully trust God. So James says, you know, know that your testing will, will lead to uh, endurance, and so consider it joy. I mean, that's, let's face it, that's kind of a strange statement, isn't it? Consider it joy when you have various trials. What do we consider joy? We consider joy when there are no trials. We, we have great joy and great happiness and great exuberance when, when you know, there's, there's nothing going on that can even slightly be considered negative in our lives. We, we get all excited when everything's going smooth. And when a, when a trial comes along, when a temptation comes along or a test comes along, we, we sometimes get all discombobulated because we say, oh, that's not the way I, I thought it would be. That's not what I expected. Why not? Why would we not expect it? I mean, I'm preaching to myself here as much as I am to you. These, these things about faith in Hebrews 11 are, are killing me. But why would we not expect it knowing that God is a God who has told us that these things are going to be a part of our life? That he's not going to give us a life of, of ease, contrary to what the prosperity preachers say on TV today? He, he's not about giving us our best life now. If you're a Christian, your best life can't be now because there's a greater life yet to come. We stand in his presence. So as, as I think as John MacArthur said, if your best life is now, then you're headed for hell. That's the only option. No, no, God's purpose is not to give us our best life now. God's purpose is to prepare us for the best life we'll ever have that we can't even begin to imagine. So he writes and he tests us. And James says, you know, be, be understanding that, that that's what's going to take place. Peter said the same thing. In, in 1 Peter, just a couple of chapters further on, he, he talked about blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, can't you just hear the people as they're hearing Peter write that and say, yes, yes, we've been saved by God. We've been prepared by God. We have an inheritance that cannot perish, cannot be defiled, cannot fade away. And we're protected by the power of God in every respect. And then in verse 6 he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. What? Oh, Peter, we like verses 3, 4, and 5 a whole lot better than we like verse 6. We don't want various trials. We don't want to be distressed in this life. We want to be at ease in Zion with Christ. Although Christ was never at ease when he was on this earth. You realize that. He goes on to say that if necessary you have been distressed by various trials. Listen to verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I mean, as we look at Scripture, there's no reason to think that there'll be no testing, that there'll be no trials, that there'll be no commands from God that seem inexplicable to us and some calls in our lives that seem inexplicable to us. But yet God expects us to hear and to answer and to trust and to obey. That's clearly what the Word teaches us. But back to Abraham and Isaac. Remember that Abraham has been waiting. Not so patiently, he went and had went in with Hagar and had Ishmael and had a son and said to the Lord, here's, here's my son. And, and can't you imagine on that day when God came to him that, that Todd read about earlier and, and he called out to him and said, Abraham. And Abraham said, Lord, here am I. I'm right here. What do you want to say? And, and God says to him, take your son. Don't you imagine when God first said, take your son, Abraham said, okay, Ishmael, where are you? No, 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 no. Take your son your only son. Oh, but Lord, I got two. I got one by Hagar and one by Sarah, and, and I've got two sons. No, no, Abraham, you only have one son. Take your son, your only son, the son that you love, Isaac. Oh, it'd be a lot easier, Lord, if let me take Ishmael. It'd be a lot easier if you'd let me do what I want to do in this situation. A son's a son's a son, isn't it? No. You see, God... In Abraham's life and in our life, it's a principle you need to understand. God never accepts what we do. He never accepts what we think we can offer to him from our own wisdom and from our own power. He only accepts that which he does in us. He only accepts as an offering to him that which he has produced and he has grown and he has matured within our lives. And when we go about trying to help God with stuff... The scripture calls that just wood, hay, and stubble, and it's all going to be burned up. But the things that he does in our life, the things that we trust him for, those are the things that will be imperishable. Although in this life they may bring us some great trials. So God says, Abraham, take Isaac, your only son, the son you love, the son that is according to the promise. And I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah. And I want you to take him there. And I want you to offer him on, a, on an altar. Sacrifice him. A burnt sacrifice. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. So Abraham obeyed. He took Isaac and two of his manservants. And he, he, he prepared to go. And he went the journey. And he got to Mount Moriah. And he left the two servants behind. And he took the wood and he placed it on Isaac's back. Don't miss the significance of that as a type. He, he, he placed the wood on Isaac's back and they walked up the journey. And as they're going, even Isaac says, Dad, uh, uh, we, I, I see the fire in your hand. I, I see the knife in your hand. And, and I, I see the wood. But where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, even at that point, said, Isaac, indicating that Isaac had no idea what was going on. He said, Isaac, the Lord will provide 
the sacrifice. The Lord will provide it for you, for us. So he went on and he prepared the altar and he prepared the wood and he prepared the fire and he prepared Isaac and he, he bound Isaac and he laid him on the altar and the scripture says, and it had to have been with trembling hands, and it had to have been with, with some fear in his own heart. He, he took the knife that he brought with him, and the scripture says he raised the knife over Isaac, and he prepared to plunge it down. And just at the very last moment, just a split second before he thrust that knife into his son Isaac, the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, stop. Your faith has been proven. Lay no hand on your son. He looked off to the side and there was a ram in the thicket. He undid Isaac, went over and got the ram, and they offered it together and worshipped the Lord and thanked him for his provision. Wow. I mean, that was the ultimate... I mean, again, I don't think we can put ourselves fully in Abraham's shoes and say, oh, let's imagine what Abraham was going through. I don't think that's possible. I have a son. I have two daughters. I, I can't imagine even, even thinking about anything like that. I mean, I, I realize that there is a sense in which when we dedicated our children and we dedicated uh, Avery a few weeks ago here, that we, when we dedicate our children, we're saying to God, Lord, we're coming, offering ourselves to raise this one in a godly manner, and we're, we're giving this, we're acknowledging that this one that you have given to us really does belong to you. And, and, and even in the, the pledge, even in the vow that we take there, we say, and we are committed admitting that, that we, are in, we are in support of you doing whatever you want to do in his or her life as we dedicate that little baby. But, uh, but we're never called to thrust a knife through it and offer the baby as a, as a burnt offering to God. We're offering what God has given us back to God and saying, we give this acknowledging that this little one belongs to you. But that's easy. I mean, that's easy compared to what Abraham went through. There's no blood involved. There's no death involved. It's just saying some words. With Abraham, the words were backed up by action and was stopped by God. Now, I want you to go back a minute to verse 19. Because it says that he, that is Abraham, considered, and the word considered there is he dwelt on it, he thought about it, he, he, he knew it, at least intellectually. He mulled over the fact that God is able to raise people even from the dead. So he's on this journey, and the whole time he's saying, Lord, I know you're able. I, I, I don't know why you're asking this of me. I don't understand it completely, but I know that you're able to raise people even from the dead. And if I offer Isaac, I know that, that you're going to give him back to me, alive, resurrected, because of the promises you've made. And I believe your promises, and your promises are true. And, and there's no way you're going to negate and lie about the promises. You're going to take care of that. I believe he's coming back from the dead. And then it says, from which he, that is Abraham, also received him, that is Isaac, back 
as a type. Now, it'd be real easy just to say, okay, Abraham believed God would raise him from the dead, and that's fine, and, and let's move on to verse 20. But the word, that little idea type there, it's a word that could also be translated as a parable, as an example of that which was yet to come. He was given back to him as a type. In other words, he was offered completely, and, and before the knife struck him, God stopped him, God brought him back, and it's as though he had died, because Abraham had come to the point, I'm offering this boy to God as he's commanded, and God has given him back as a type. A type of what? A type of what? A picture of what? A parable about what? That a father can be commanded by God to give his son and be faithful in that and then go on and see the promises of the coming? No. Something was going to happen thousands of years later. Because you see, there was going to be another father like Abraham in many ways and unlike Abraham in every way. There's going to be another father who's going to have another son, an only son, an only begotten son whom he's going to send into the world. And he's going to require of him to go to an altar just like Isaac did. And he's going to require him to carry the wood of that altar on his back. You remember on the, the Via Dolorosa when Jesus took upon himself that cross and he carried the wooden cross to the, the, almost to the place of Golgotha? He, he fell under it and he, they, they uh, conscripted Simon the Serene to, to carry the cross the rest of the way. But here was this one carrying the wood to the altar of the sacrifice, which is the cross. And, and there's this father who is giving his son as a sacrifice for the sins of men everywhere, for you and for me, and, and for the sins that we have carried out, our rebellion against God, just like the song we sang this morning when we said, Lord, you made us your own. We don't understand how you could accept a rebel to your cause. We don't understand how you could accept someone like me. But, but he sent his son to go to that altar. That's the only altar we have, by the way. This is no altar here. In front of the church is no altar. It's the Lord's Supper table. That's the altar right there. The only altar there's ever been. And it's not that one. It's just the one that that stands for and is a picture of, as Isaac was a picture of the one who would go there. And in that moment, they placed him on that cross on the ground, and they raised their hands with hammers and with spikes and with nails to drive into his, into his hands and his feet, and later to pierce him in his side. And they raised that hammer for the first blow, and the problem was there was no one there to say, Stop, because there's no one greater than God. And God had now sent his son to be a sacrifice of which Isaac was a type and a picture. And he drove the nails into it. They drove the nails into his hands. They drove the nails into his feet. They raised him up. And there on that cross, God carried out the promise that he gave to Abraham when, he, when Abraham said, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. And on that cross, God provided the sacrifice. He didn't stop his own hand. But rather, he gave the only thing that could accomplish my and your forgiveness. Listen, when you talk about being forgiven of your sins, my friend, don't talk about it with a light tone. Because there's no lightness about it. It was a great cost. 
You know, when Abraham was going to offer his son, he thought that was great. But then he saw that, that, that later on what God was showing was that, that God was going to make a sacrifice even greater. Matter of fact, Abraham's question, or, or excuse me, Isaac's question to his father as they went up that mountain was asked for generations and generations and generations after Abraham. Where is the lamb? Oh, every day there were lambs being offered in the, in the temple and in the synagogue and on the altar that they had. A, they offered the sacrifice of lambs. But every one of those rabbis and every one of those priests and every one of those who did that recognized and realized that the blood of a, an animal, of a lamb, could not really effectually deal with sin. So every time they offered that, really the question was being asked, just like with Isaac, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb that will really do it? Not just symbolically, not just temporally, but where is the lamb that will really bring the cleansing of sins? Just before he began his earthly ministry, his cousin, the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you will, John the Baptist, came out of the wilderness, not very good hygiene. You know, he'd been living out there eating locusts and honey, wearing camel hair, looked like, I mean, had to look like a, I remember this, many of you don't, but a 1960s hippie. I mean, he had to look really bad, long hair, scruffy, beard, dirty came out of the wilderness and began to preach, repent for the day of the Lord is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away from false idols. Turn away from your own selves for the day of the Lord is at hand. And one day while he was down there at the River Jordan baptizing for repentance, one came to him and said, baptize me. He said, oh, not me. I'm not even worthy to untie your shoelace. What do you mean, baptize you? You ought to be baptizing me. And he said, no, this has to be done that the law might be fulfilled, that God's word might be fulfilled. And so John baptized Jesus. He didn't need it. He didn't need to repent of anything. He's perfect. But fulfill the word of the Lord. He baptized Jesus. Jesus came up out of the water. And as he walked up on to the land, John had one statement to say. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now behold a Lamb of God. Now behold one of many who might be coming, but behold the Lamb of God. Thousands of years after Isaac served as a type, as a picture, of the type of sacrifice that must be given. The Father gave His Son 
that we might live. Folks, that's, that's not something we give an emotional response to. It's not even something we give a, a, a mental or volitional response to primarily. That's something we can only respond to spiritually. As the Holy Spirit gives us insight, gives us understanding that that is who he said he was and that is who he is. Not who he was, but who he is. Because even as Abraham said, or the I of Hebrews says that he considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, he sent his son to the cross to die a heinous death. And it wasn't the physical part. It wasn't the nails that were so painful. It wasn't the spear that was so painful. It was the fact that in that moment when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said, It is finished that he bore on himself the sins of all his people for all time. Your sins. 2,000 years later on that cross. My sins. 2,000 years later on that cross, and my sins of yesterday and today, and my sins of tomorrow, on that cross, born by the Lamb. God, that was the pain of the cross. They took him down, and they buried him. Buried him in a tomb. Prepared him properly in a quick sort of way for burial. Spices and Things around the grave clothes, around his body, wrapped up, put him in the grave, rolled the stone against it. The Roman government sealed it shut. Put a guard there. The disciples ran and hid because they thought, you know, they did that to him. He told us that if they receive me, they'll receive you. If they reject me, they'll reject you. They saw what they did to Christ, and they went and they hid because they really thought that they were next, probably. They weren't courageous disciples. They were chickens in the Kentucky vernacular. They went and hid three days later. Three days later, they woke up on that Sunday morning that we call Easter Sunday morning. I really like to just call it Resurrection Sunday morning. Stone was rolled to the side. Stone that one person observed was a stone so large that 20 men couldn't move it. That's how big it was. The stone was rolled away, and the tomb was empty. See, Abraham was right. The God who requires such things can raise people even from the dead. And he raised his own son from the dead to validate, if you will, to, to confirm everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did to be true. I won't go into all the evidences about that and what that meant. We'll do that in a couple of months. So we come together again for a Easter celebration. We'll talk about the, the resurrection and what that means. But here's the point I want you to see. Abraham and Isaac were pointing us to a greater sacrifice that was yet to come. And a sacrifice that is effective for all who believe. To not only forgive sin, past, present, and future, 
to not only remove the stain of sin, past, present, and future, but also to restore rebels to be friends with God. To restore rebels like you and I were. To be adopted into the family. To made, be made joint heirs with Christ as, as Isaac was the heir of all the blessings. So we in Christ now are the heirs of all the blessings of God. And we look for another land. We look for another home. But as I used part of that prayer from Sir, Isaac, uh, for Sir Francis Drake just earlier, how often do we set our eyes on the things of this earth? Forget to even consider what God is preparing for us. When this flesh that is feeble has passed away. Abraham and Isaac teach us not only about Abraham's faith, it not only confirmed his faith to him, it not only brought him to a greater understanding of the fear of God, but it teaches us about the great gift that God has given us in Christ, the sacrifice that atones, and the sacrifice that brings a relationship with the living God. Let's pray together. And we're going to change the last song. I love to do this to y'all. Back to All I Have is Christ. We could do that. Because that's really the message of Abraham looking forward. It's all I have is Christ. But not only is it all I have, it's all I need. And when we're in Him, it's all we desire. A relationship with Him. You may be here this morning and not be a Christian, not be a believer. If not, I invite you to Christ, the one who is the sacrifice. I invite you to come to Him by faith. I invite you to turn turn to Him by His grace and believe and be changed. If you're here and a believer, I ask you to sing this song as you've never sung it before. All I have is Christ. All I want is Christ because of what He has done. In my life. Father, help us believe what we sing. That riches will pass away, that material things will pass away, and in the final analysis, all we have is Christ. Stand with me as we sing.